It's September 8, 2019. Antonio Brown goes from being the biggest dummy in the NFL to quite possibly the best chess master in the NFL, all in one day. Going to go across the lines with Pete Rose and the crossface crippler, Chris Benoit. Darkwing Duck is the illest Disney creation ever. And hater appreciation for Oprah Winfrey? Harpo, is that you? Let's get dangerous. Across the country and around the world, across the street and around the corner, this is Over the Culture. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Over the Culture Podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom, and your mom's mom, and your dad's mom, too. You also get to hear about things I don't like. Like people who stick their nose up at the culture. Who are you? Think you better than us? What's up, everybody? I am your bastard of ceremonies. The one gig kid, Pat Stayblack, Reefer Sutherland, Sir Blunt Sparkington, Steve G. And this is over the culture, eh? Hey people, I don't know if you're aware of this, but today is National Grandparents Day. Yeah. Happy National Grandparents Day to the granddads, to the grandmas. How many of you even knew that was a day? It should be a day though, right? Why the fuck not? The moms have days, the dads have days. The grandparents need to have a day. When it comes to the family, they started this gangster shit. They set the tone for how the family's gonna run. They procreated the people who procreated you. So shout out to the grandpas. Shout out to the grandmas. Actually got to spend some time with my grandpa yesterday. I helped him with uh, some yard work around some of his properties here in Sandusky. Helped him clean up. And uh, he's a funny guy. He's hilarious. Uh, He's an old school guy. He's from a different time. Uh, he, he talks like an old school guy He thinks like an old school guy I don't know what else to say about that um, he's, he's a fiery guy He might snap on you from time to time When you don't expect it um, Yeah I, I remember when he found out I was left handed He's like oh you're, you're a lefty You know what they say about lefties They're funny Funny Not like haha funny like queer Like oh yeah Grandpa, yeah, okay. But yeah, man, I love my grandpa. Uh, he's one of those guys that like to fish, like to hunt. He worked at Ford all of his life, all of his adult life, uh, until he retired. I want to say he worked there for maybe 30 to 40 years. And uh, yeah, man, he's still ticking. So if, if, you, if you have grandparents still alive, hey, man, wish them a happy grandparents' day because they deserve it. And that, that's my dad's dad. My dad's mom, she worked at a library her whole adult life until she retired. And I remember she would regularly bring me back books, like the newest books, like when I was a kid. And um, it kept me sharp when it came to my reading skills. And she's a big reason why I appreciate reading now. So shout out to my dad's mom. She was one of those grandmas that always had like a... Uh, 
a cute nickname for me as a kid. Oh, pumpkin. Oh, sugar. Oh, sweetie. She, she's one of those. And still does it to this day. Love her the pieces. Now, my mom's mom, she had a big part in me, uh, my, my upbringing. Um, I lived with her uh, from my formative years when I was, I want to say, 11 uh, until I became a grown adult. And she worked at General Motors just about her whole adult life, or at least all my life she did until she retired. Um, sweet lady, but she's stern. She didn't do all of those those sweet nicknames for me, but the love was in her actions. Um, I know I was always a good one of her biggest concerns growing up, you know, because she she took me in and she just wanted me to do right. Um, she wanted me to make something out of myself and. You know, I, I did too. I didn't want to let my grandmother down. Um, she, she unfortunately is, isn't with us anymore. Um, but yeah, she, she worked at General Motors uh, for all of my life. And um, she's a big reason for uh, me being the guy who I am now, um, for better or worse. And uh, if, if you're hearing this, Grandma, um, you're always on my mind. Um, my, my mom's dad, uh, he, he was the cool grandpa. Uh, he used to have a candy store back in the day uh, that he ran, and uh, when I would, when he would babysit me, I was literally a kid in the candy store. He would hook me up with free Sour Patch Kids, free Nihilators, bags of chips, um, pickles, juices. Yeah, man, and he's still here. Uh, he's still alive and ticking. But yeah, man, grandparents, man. Shout out to all the grandparents. You guys rock. To the grandpas who like fishing, who like hunting, who like shooting the shit with their old war buddies from back in the day who are still alive, drinking on that homemade moonshine. Shout out to the grandmas with the church hat to match every church outfit. Shoulders, chest, knees, toes. Yes, Gucci down. Maybe not Gucci. The grandmas who always have a piece of Werther's or a peppermint in their purse, just ready. The grandmas who never leave, let you leave the house with an empty stomach. You haven't, you look like you haven't eaten. You on that stuff? Grandparents, you make the world go around. Good news, Kevin Hart is back and walking. Uh, they said he's, he's back in the swing of things. He's starting his physical therapy sessions uh, just a week ago. He got into that nasty wreck and, you know, hopefully everybody can get back to full recovery. So everything's on the up and up, Kevin Hart. Good to hear. Uh, also good news, 3-6 Mafia is having a reunion tour and it could possibly lead to a new album. Yeah. 3-6 Mafia, one of my favorite groups ever. Sipping on some scissor, slob on my knob. Yeah. Riding spinners, riding spinners. Man, that is one group that got me through college. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I should say it that way, but man, I did listen to a lot of 3-6 Mafia in Bowling Green, man. Because it was hard out here for a pimp when you gotta spend money on tuition and school loans. And apparently, uh, Takashi69, 
Tokyo Drift, whatever the fuck. Uh, his manager is getting sentenced to 15 years. Uh, I haven't read too much into it because I don't really care for Tokyo 45, um, Tentai 73. Tempe, Arizona, 27, whatever the fuck his name is. I don't care for culture vultures. I don't care for clowns. I don't care for clowns who are culture vultures. So Takashi Six whatever the fuck his name is, man, he is a rat. And that's that. Also, something I guess important of note, Nicki Minaj announces she's retiring from music. One door closes, another door shall open. And the big news in sports is that Antonio Brown is a New England Patriot. After being let go by the Oakland Raiders, the following day, he signs with Belichick and the Brady Bunch. According to ESPN News, Antonio Brown sought advice from professional social media consultants for ideas on how to accelerate his release from the Oakland Raiders, sources told ESPN. At least one consultant couldn't tell whether Brown was serious or not, according to sources. Brown's tumultuous tenure with the Raiders officially ended Saturday, when the Pro Bowl receiver was released by the Oakland Raiders and signed with the New England Patriots. Brown's social media activity made headlines Wednesday morning when he posted a copy of team-issued fines on Instagram, a move that led to a heated argument with general manager Mike Mayock later that day at practice. The Raiders announced Friday that despite the fallout from his spat with Mayock, Brown was expected to play in their season opener Monday night against the Denver Broncos. But the Raiders also fined Brown $215,073.53, wow, 53 cents really, for conduct detrimental to the team, sources told ESPN, prompting Brown to publicly request his release in another Instagram post Saturday morning. By fining Brown, the Raiders voided the $29.125 million worth of guaranteed money in his deal, according to sources. Brown officially became a free agent at 4.01 p.m. Eastern on Saturday and agreed to a deal with New England Patriots shortly thereafter. The Patriots had strong interest in Brown earlier this offseason when, according to sources, Bill Belichick was willing to trade New England's first-round draft pick to the Pittsburgh Steelers for Brown. But Steelers general manager Kevin Colbert wanted at least a first and second round pick from the Patriots, and even then, he was not inclined to trade Brown to their AFC rival and the reigning Super Bowl champions, according to sources. The Cleveland Browns and Seattle Seahawks also considered attempting to sign Brown on Saturday, according to sources, although the Patriots were always considered the frontrunner. Brown further aggravated his situation in Oakland on Wednesday when, after dominating the Raiders' defensive backs throughout the workout, he informed the team that his hamstring was bothering him and he felt that he needed an MRI, according to league sources. The Raiders were not pleased that Brown, who looked so good during practice, felt he needed an MRI on a then-ailing hamstring, according to sources. They felt like he was trying to pull one over on us, according to one source. Then to complicate matters, after the Raiders called Brown on Thursday morning and told him not to come to work, Brown missed a meeting later that night with head coach John Gruden, according to sources. Brown is not eligible to play until week two at the earliest, which means he will miss New England's opener Sunday night against his former team, the Steelers. The Patriots and Raiders do not play this regular season. Wow. So this was a plan of Antonio Brown's this whole time. And good for him, because I like to think no adult man playing in a professional sport getting paid millions of dollars is that dumb. Can't be. 
Maybe all of this was just a grand scheme of Antonio Brown's. He was the puppet master, just fiddling away with Mike Tomlin, John Gruden, Oakland management, only to find himself in a golden opportunity to land in the Super Bowl by the following season. Wow. That's brilliant. Well played. As much as I despise the New England Patriots, their evil genius coach, Bill Belichick, Sistam Brady, and, I, you know, this is definitely a come up. They've been in the Super Bowl just about every year for the past decade. Um, and if you're playing in the NFL, why wouldn't you go to the people who are winning just about every fucking year, right? So this should be interesting. Tom Brady considered, you know, one of the greats to some people. He's the greatest. Ah, not my goat. But he does have another pro bowler to throw to now. And it's possible, just putting this out there, Gronkowski could make a return. If Witten can do it, why can't Gronk? Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting. I'm not going to be quick to give the Super Bowl to to the Patriots just yet because I do remember when Tom Brady had Randy Moss to throw to, they ran into the New York Giants and the Brady killer Eli Manning. Let's see where they're at after these 16 weeks because those Browns are looking good and how about them Cowboys? Speaking of which, Zeke inks the deal. We're gonna get our Zeke back, we're gonna get our Dak back. We got our Jason Witten back. It's time to get back in the playoffs, boys. It's time to get another ring. We need another ring. Oh, precious. Oh, precious. Yeah, we them boys. Today in sports history, in 1939, Bob Feller of the Cleveland Indians becomes the youngest pitcher to win 20 games at 20 years old. In 1960, American sprinter Wilma Rudolph wins her third gold medal of the Rome Olympics, anchoring the U.S. 4x100 relay team. In 1968, Arthur Ashe wins his first open-era U.S. title. In 1973, Hank Aaron sets the record for most home runs in one league with 709. In 1985, Pete Rose ties Ty Cobb with 4,191 hits. In 1989, George Brett gets his 2,500th hit. In 1995, Cleveland Indians clinched their first American League Central Division title, only to lose to the goddamn Atlanta Braves in the World Series. 2001. Venus Williams successfully defends her U.S. Open title against her younger sister, Serena Williams. In 2002, Pete Sampras wins his 14th and final Grand Slam title, beating Andre Agassi. In 2008, Roger Federer beats Andy Murray for his fifth consecutive U.S. title. And that was my half-assed sports report. So today, September 8th, there's quite a few... TV shows that started on this day. I'm just going to rattle a couple off. Some of them you may have heard of. Some of them you may have not. 
Uh, I'm going to start off with Star Trek. Start it today. A show called That Girl. Super Friends. Star Trek The Animated Series. Lassie's Rescue Rangers. Inch High Private Eye. Goober and the Ghost Chasers. <laughs> Phyllis started on this day. New Adventures of Flash Gordon. Pink Panther and Sons. The Oprah Winfrey Show began on this day. Defenders of the Earth. Silverhawks. Bobby's World. Hey, Bobo. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, the animated series. The Adventures of Super Mario Brothers 3. Herman's Head started on this day. New York Undercover. Detective Torres, Detective Williams, yeah. Allie McBeal. Pokemon. Get Real. The Ellen DeGeneres Show. iCarly. Melrose Place. And on this whole list, my favorite, I have to say, the greatest Disney character ever, Darkwing Duck, started in 1991, September 8th. So Darkwing Duck hit these streets September 8, 1991. I was a fan from day one, okay? And his sidekick, Launchpad McQuack, you know, saying he was he was holding it down on the pilot side of the game. You know, he he was kind of like the holdover from Ducktales. He 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 was the spinover piece. He was the spinoff piece. Went from Ducktales to Darkwing Duck, man. He transitioned nicely, man. Shout out to Launchpad McQuack, man. People don't give him his props. He's also one of the coolest Disney characters ever. All right, sorry Ariel, sorry Simba, sorry Mufasa. Pinocchio and Dumbo and all those princes and shit. All oh, y'all were all right or whatever. Y'all were cool. Mickey wasn't. Donald was cool though. I love Darkwing Duck, man. He was rocking the the, the purple what was it trench coat with the with the hat with the with the Undertaker hat, and he always had bars. He always made his presence known. You know what I mean? I am the terror that flaps in the night. I am the smoke that smokes smoke oysters. I am the meter on the cab of justice. I am the onion that stings in your eyes. I am the cat somebody let out of the bag. I am the plot twist in the second reel. I am the wind scores that pecks at your nightmares. I am the feathery phantom that haunts your nightmares. I am the itch that you cannot reach. I am the bubblegum that sticks in your hair. I am the special news bulletin that interrupts your favorite show. I am the raspberry seed that you can't floss out. I am the editor that leaves you on the cutting room floor. I am the clock cleaner who rings your chimes. I am the slug that slimes your begonias. I am the chill that rums up your spine. I am the headache in your criminal mind. I am the spinach that sticks to your teeth. I am the fingernail that scrapes across the blackboard of your soul. I am the burned out bulb that you cannot reach. I am the principal you were sent to see. I am the batteries that are not included. I am the pit bull that bites the ankle of crime. I am the weed whacker in the garden of evil. I am the ingrown toe in your party pumps. I am the cholesterol that clogs your arteries. I am the stain that can't be rubbed out. The pin that bursts your bubble. The spider who nips at your neck. The flea you cannot flick. The termite that devours your floorboards. I am Darkwing Duck. Yeah, man. That dude was the shit. He had his adopted daughter. Yeah, man. He, he took Goslin. Was it was Goslin? Yeah, he took Goslin under his wing, no pun intended, because he had a big heart, man. Darkwing cared about the kids, and his his foe, 
His villainous foe was Negaduck. He was everything that Darkwing was not. And it was funny that his name was Negaduck because it was so, sounds so similar to Negaduck. So sometimes I call him Negaduck. And he lived in the Negaverse, also the Negaverse. And it kind of like, if, if you watch the show, the Negaverse kind of looked like the slums. I don't know if they were trying to have some kind of under, underlying statement or whatever the fuck you know how disney or really cartoons in general do maybe they were maybe they weren't man but like darkwing duck was the good guy and nigga duck in his niggaverse and his his group of villains they were like the bad guys man and one of them was like a professor who turned into a plant and he ended up like killing people bushroot that was his name bushroot he was a scientist uh whose experiment went terribly wrong and it turned him into a super villain like plant throwed shit right then there was another villain called megavolt and he was like a one of those dogs and he had like a outlet like a like a ac outlet poking out of his head and he was voiced by dan castellanetta famous for his simpsons work but how awesome was dark wing fucking duck man with all those bars man he is the terror that flaps in the night man and he had a different saying for every episode and his theme song was the shit. Sorry, people, if I'm nerding out right now, but Darkwing Duck was the shit, I promise you. Daring Duck of Mystery, Champion of Right, swoops out of the shadows, Darkwing owns the night, somewhere some villain schemes, but his number's up, 321, Darkwing Duck, when there's trouble you call DW, Darkwing Duck, let's get dangerous, Darkwing Duck. Darkwing, Darkwing, Duck. Cloud of smoke and he appears, the master of surprise. Who's that cunning mind behind that shadowy disguise? Nobody knows for sure, but the bad guys are out of luck because here comes Darkwing fucking Duck. Y'all better recognize Disney Universe and the, the Negaverse, Negaverse, whatever, all the verses. Darkwing Duck, man, shitting on all these other Disney characters, man. Where is his fucking movie yet? Y'all better bring him back, man, and not CGI my fucking Darkwing Duck, man. I got volume one on DVD. Hey, shout out to Darkwing Duck and Launchpad and Gosling. Yeah, man, that show fucking rocked, man. It owned the fucking Disney afternoon cartoon block, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Darkwing fucking Duck. Nuck if you duck. Let's get dangerous. When we come back, we're going to go across the lines with Pete Rose and Chris Benoit. We'll be black after these messages. After these messages, we'll be right black. In today's birthdays, Happy birthday to NFL quarterback Matt Barkley, no relation to Charles, he turns 29. Rapper and actor Wiz Khalifa is 32. Taylor Gang. <laughs> Happy 38th birthday to actor Jonathan Taylor Thomas, famous for playing the middle son Randy on Home Improvement, as well as the voice of young Simba in the original Lion King. Singer, songwriter, producer, and actress Pink turns 40. Actor, director, and producer Lorenz Tate is 44 today. O-Dog from Menace Society. English actor Martin Freeman turns 48. Actor, director, producer, screenwriter, and former WCW World Heavyweight Champion David Arquette is also 48. 
wrestler and former member of Ravens Flock, Lodi, is 49. Also 49 is retired basketball player and coach strangler, Latrell Sprewell. Wrestler Raven, who actually ran the flock in WCW, is 55 today. His angle, his feud with Tommy Dreamer back in ECW is classic and it's a must-see for all wrestling fans out there. Kind of set the tone for ECW and, and brought the extreme element to the corporation, to the company. Singer, songwriter, guitarist, and actress Amy Mann turns 59. Retired basketball player and current assistant coach of the Oklahoma City Thunder, Maurice Cheeks is 63. Japanese wrestler Great Kabuki is 71. And straight out of Brooklyn is Bernie Sanders, who's 78 today. Happy birthday, guys. episode of booty and fight in atlanta this bitch pours a drink on that hoe when she finds out they're fucking the same nigga tune in to vh1's booty and fight in atlanta a show filled with cattiness rattiness fake tits fake boobs wigs weaves and most importantly niggas vh1's booty and fight in atlanta On this day in 1985, Peter Edward Rose of the Cincinnati Reds, better known as Pete Rose, made history when he tied Ty Cobb's record of 4,191 hits against the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. He would break that record three days later on September 11, 1985, with his 4,192nd hit against the San Diego Padres in Cincinnati. However, it's been reputed that September 8th was actually the date he broke the record. The stats and the record keeping in the early 20th century doesn't hold up to today's standards, and the American League mistakenly double counted a two-hit game by Cobb in 1910. So Cobb actually ended his career with 4,189 hits, but Major League Baseball still recognizes the 4,191 number, even though it's widely acknowledged to be inaccurate. Whether Cobb's final number was 4189 or 4191, Pete Rose was going to break that record one way or the other. And on September 8, 1985, he recorded two singles and one RBI against the Cubs, but the game was called, ending in a 5-5 tie. Rose finished his career that following season with 4,256 hits, a record that doesn't look like it'll be broken anytime soon. Around this time, while Pete Rose was wrapping up his career as a baseball player, just up north in the great land of Canada, a young man by the name of Chris Benoit was beginning his career as a professional wrestler. 
and that leads us to Across the Lines. He would step across the line. Habitually. He's a habitual line stepper. Line stepper. Christopher Michael Benoit began his wrestling career in 1985 in Stu Hart's Stampede Wrestling promotion, based out of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Stu Hart trained Benoit in the Hart Family Dungeon, the same place where his idols Bret Hart and the Dynamite Kid trained. Both wrestlers were a heavy influence on Benoit's wrestling style, and it showed in his matches. He would perform daredevil high-risk moves like Dynamite, but was also technically sound as a performer like Bret. Benoit adopted some of Dynamite's signature moves like the snap suplex, the diving headbutt, and even took on the name of Dynamite Chris Benoit. In his very first wrestling match, he attempted the diving headbutt off the top rope before learning how to land correctly and had the wind knocked out of him. He claimed that he would never attempt the move again at that point. In 1989, Stampede closed its doors later that year and Benoit departed overseas for New Japan Pro Wrestling. 1989 was a tough year for Pete Rose to say the least. That February, he was informally questioned by MLB Commissioner Peter Uberoff and National League President Bart Giamatti that Rose had bet on the baseball games he had played in as well as managed. At first, Rose denied the allegations. By this time, MLB owners had elected Giamatti to succeed Uberoff and the outgoing commissioner decided to leave the matter to be dealt with by his successor. During this time, Sports Illustrated gave the public their first detailed report of the allegations that Rose had placed bets on baseball games in their cover story of the April 3, 1989 issue. Giamatti assumed office as the new commissioner of baseball on April 1st, and three days later, John M. Dowd, former attorney for the United States Department of Justice, was assigned to investigate the charges against Rose. Dowd interviewed many of Rose's associates, including alleged bookies and bet runners. In May, he delivered a 225-page summary of his investigation, named the Dowd Report, to the new commissioner, Giamatti. In the report, Dowd documented Rose's alleged gambling activities in 1985 and 1986 and compiled a day-by-day account of Rose's alleged betting on baseball games in 1987. The Dowd Report mentioned his alleged bets on 52 Reds games in 1987, where Rose wagered a minimum of $10,000 a day. Rose stood his ground and continued denying all of the accusations against him and refused to appear at a hearing with Giamatti on the matter. He filed a lawsuit in Hamilton County Court of Common Pleas, the state trial court covering Cincinnati, Ohio. Ohio! He alleged that the commissioner had prejudged the case and could not provide a fair hearing. The Court of Common Pleas issued a temporary restraining order to delay the hearing, but Giamatti sought to remove the case to the Federal United States District Court for the Southern District of Ohio. Ohio! The Southern District of Ohio granted Giamatti's removal petition. The two parties then entered settlement negotiations. As the federal court, whose judges were life appointees and whose jurisdiction included large areas where the Reds were less popular, was seen to be a less favorable forum for Rose than a state court covering only Cincinnati and its surrounding areas whose judges face election every six years. On August 24, 1989, with his back against the wall, Rose voluntarily accepted a permanent place on baseball's ineligible list. He accepted that there was a factual reason for the ban. In return, Major League Baseball agreed to make no formal finding with regard to the gambling allegations. According to baseball rules, 
Rose could apply for reinstatement in one year, but Bart Giamatti said, there is absolutely no deal for reinstatement. That is exactly what we did not agree to in terms of a fixed number of years. Rose, with the 412 and 373 record as a manager, was replaced by Tommy Helms. Rose began therapy with a psychiatrist for treatment of gambling addiction. Giamatti died of a heart attack on September 1st, 1989, just eight days after announcing Rose's suspension. In 1992, Rose applied for reinstatement. Faye Vinson, who was deputy commissioner, had played a key role in negotiating the agreement banning Rose before becoming commissioner after Giamatti's death, never acted on Rose's application. 1992 was also the year Chris Benoit made a brief stop in World Championship Wrestling before leaving the company in 93 to return to Japan. In 1994, Benoit began working with Extreme Championship Wrestling in between tours of Japan. By this time, he started gaining notoriety as the Crippler. In November of that year, Benoit accidentally broke Sabu's neck within the opening seconds of the match when Sabu botched his own fall from midair. After the match, Benoit returned to the locker room and broke down over the possibility that he might have paralyzed someone. He took great pride in his work as a professional wrestler, which is why he had been regarded as one of the most skilled technicians of his era, and quite possibly of all time. Although unintended, this incident further cemented his Crippler moniker. Benoit was never known for being a big talker or charismatic, but his ring work was just that good to make up for the lack of either. So much so that when he rejoined WCW in 1995, he was approached by wrestling legend himself, Ric Flair, to join his Four Horsemen stable. While a member of the Horsemen, Benoit would begin a violent feud with Kevin Sullivan, who was also a booker for the company. Sullivan booked a feud in which Benoit was having an affair with Sullivan's real-life wife and on-screen valet, Nancy. Benoit and Nancy were forced to spend time together to make the affair look real, like holding hands in public, sharing hotel rooms, etc. Coincidentally, this on-screen relationship developed into a real-life affair off-screen. As a result, Sullivan and Benoit had a contentious backstage relationship at best. Benoit did, however, admit having a certain amount of respect for Sullivan, stating that Sullivan never took undue liberties in the ring during their feud, even though he blamed Benoit for breaking up his marriage. Due to frustrations with management, Benoit left WCW in 2000 to join the World Wrestling Federation, where he'd finally see the fruits of his labor come to fruition. While with the WWF, he received every possible title with the company and several accolades from various wrestling publications such as Best Wrestler, Best Technical Wrestler, Feud of the Year to name a few. But on November 13, 2005, his best friend Eddie Guerrero was found dead in his hotel room. Benoit was devastated at the loss of his best friend and was very emotional during a series of video testimonials, eventually breaking down on camera. Some of his colleagues state that he was never the same after Eddie's death. On June 19, 2007, Benoit wrestled his final match, defeating Elijah Burke in a match to determine who would compete for the vacated ECW World Championship at Vengeance on June 24th. But Benoit missed the weekend house shows, telling WWE officials that his wife and son were vomiting blood due to food poisoning. When he failed to show up for the pay-per-view, viewers were informed that he was unable to compete due to a family emergency, and he was replaced in the title match by Johnny Nitro, who won the match and became ECW World Champion. The crowd spent majority of the match chanting for Benoit. 
At about 3.30 p.m. Eastern on Saturday, June 23rd, fellow wrestler and close friend Chavo Guerrero received a voicemail message from Benoit's phone stating that he had overslept and missed his flight and would be late for that night's house show in Beaumont, Texas. Guerrero called Benoit back and found that Benoit sounded tired and groggy as he confirmed everything that he had said in his voice message. Guerrero, who was concerned about Benoit's tone and demeanor, called him back 12 minutes later. Benoit did not answer the call and Guerrero left the message asking Benoit to call back. At 3.44, Benoit called Guerrero back stating that he had not answered the call because he was on the phone with Delta Airlines changing his flight. Benoit stated that he had a stressful day due to Nancy and their son Daniel being sick from food poisoning. Guerrero then replied with, all right man, if you need to talk, I'm here for you. Benoit ended the conversation by saying, I love you Chavo. Guerrero would later state that Benoit sounded off when he talked to him, especially when he said, I love you. Another co-worker who often traveled with Benoit called him from outside the Houston airport and Benoit answered. Benoit told the co-worker that Nancy was vomiting blood and that Daniel was also vomiting. On Sunday, June 24th, five text messages were sent to co-workers between 3.51 a.m. and 3.58 a.m. using both Chris Benoit's and Nancy Benoit's cell phones. Four of them were the Benoit's address. The fifth said that the family dogs were in the enclosed pool area and also noted that a garage side door had been left open. Guerrero and referee Scott Armstrong were two of the recipients of these texts. During this time, Benoit called and left a voicemail for an unknown friend. Benoit later called WWE's talent relations office, stating that his son was vomiting and that he and Nancy were at the hospital with him. He also stated that he would be taking a later flight into Houston where he was scheduled to face CM Punk for the vacant ECW World Heavyweight Championship at Vengeance, Night of the Champions. Then on June 25, 2007, police entered Benoit's home in Fayetteville, Georgia, when WWE, Benoit's employers, requested a welfare check after Benoit missed weekend events without notice, leading to concerns. The officers discovered the bodies of Benoit, his wife Nancy, and their seven-year-old son Daniel at around 2.30 p.m. Eastern. Upon investigating, no additional suspects were sought by authorities. It was determined that Benoit had committed the murders. Over a three-day period, Benoit had killed his wife and son before committing suicide. His wife was bound before the killing, Benoit's son was drugged with Xanax and likely unconscious before Benoit strangled him. Benoit then committed suicide by hanging himself on his lat pull-down machine. WWE canceled the scheduled three-hour-long live Raw show on June 25th and replaced the broadcast version with a three-hour tribute to his life and career featuring his past matches and segments from the Hard Knocks Chris Benoit Story DVD with comments from wrestlers and announcers. However, once the details of the murder-suicide became apparent, WWE quickly and quietly began distancing itself from the wrestler by removing merchandise and no longer mentioning him. The June 26th episode of ECW began with Vince McMahon addressing the television audience about the circumstances and announcing that there would be no mention of Benoit that night other than his comments. Toxicology reports released on July 17, 2007 revealed that at their time of death, Nancy had three different drugs in her system, Xanax, Hydrocodone, and Hydromorphone, all of which were found at the therapeutic rather than toxic levels. Daniel was found to have Xanax in his system, which led the chief medical examiner to believe that he was sedated before he was murdered. Benoit was found to have Xanax, Hydrocodone, and an elevated level of testosterone caused by a synthetic form of the hormone in his system. 
The chief medical examiner attributed the testosterone level to Benoit possibly being treated for a deficiency caused by previous steroid abuse or testicular insufficiency. There was no indication that anything in Benoit's body contributed to his violent behavior that led to the murder-suicide, concluding that there was no roid rage involved. Prior to the murder-suicide, Benoit had been given illegal steroids, not in compliance with WWE's talent wellness program in February 2006. During an investigation into steroid abuse, it was revealed that other wrestlers had also been given steroids. After the double murder-suicide, former wrestler Christopher Nowinski contacted Michael Benoit, the father of Chris Benoit, suggesting that years of trauma to his son's brain may have led to his actions. Tests were conducted on Benoit's brain by Julian Bales, the head of neurosurgery at Western Virginia University, and results showed that Benoit's brain was so severely damaged it resembled the brain of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient. He was reported to have an advanced form of dementia similar to the brains of four retired NFL players who had suffered multiple concussions, sank into depression, and harmed themselves or others. Bales and his colleagues concluded that repeated concussions can lead to dementia, which can contribute to severe behavioral problems. Benoit's father suggests that brain damage may have been the leading cause of the crime. Once the details of Benoit's actions became apparent, WWE made the decision to remove nearly all mentions of Benoit from their website, from future broadcasts, and all publications. That diving headbutt that I mentioned earlier, that diving headbutt that Chris Benoit claimed he would never do again after his first match, that same diving butt that knocked the wind out of him. He never stopped doing that diving headbutt. In fact, that diving headbutt would be performed by Chris Benoit for over 20 plus years. Off the top rope, diving head into someone's body or diving into the mat. There have been discussions about whether or not Benoit would ever be inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. Steve Austin predicted that Benoit, although important to the business, would never be inducted into the Hall of Fame due to his actions. And his good friend, Chris Jericho, also stated that Benoit should never be in the Hall of Fame. One of the most talented technicians to ever lace up boots, who's put on so many great matches, accomplished so many things, winning matches, winning titles in New Japan Pro Wrestling, Pro Wrestling Illustrated Feud of the Year, Match of the Year, Wrestler of the Year. He was ranked number one of the top 500 singles wrestlers in 2004. Stampede Wrestling, Universal Wrestling Association, World Championship Wrestling where he was the heavyweight champion, tag team champion, television champion, United States heavyweight champion, WCW Triple Crown Champion, WWF slash WWE, he was the World Heavyweight Champion, Tag Team Champion, United States Champion, Intercontinental Champion, won, a won the Royal Rumble, achieved so much, but unfortunately, Vince has to do what's best for business. Chris Benoit, who's that? Never heard of him. It's been 12 years since Chris Benoit's death. Still no mention from the company, still no shot, no chance of getting into the Hall of Fame. It's been over 30 years since Pete Rose played professional baseball. Still has yet to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. 
and when he petitioned the Hall of Fame to permit his name to be submitted for induction, he said that he had not expected to be prevented from the Hall of Fame consideration when agreeing to the lifetime ban. But although he's ineligible for Baseball Hall of Fame, Rose was inducted into the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame in 2016. Member of the All-Century Team, 17-time All-Star, 3-time World Series Champion, National League MVP, World Series MVP, National League Rookie of the Year, 2-time Golden Glove Award winner, Silver Slug Award winner, Roberto Clemente Award, National League Batting Champion, 3 times. He holds the record for career hits, career singles, career games played, career at-bats, and career plate appearances. But the Hall of Fame has to say Pete Rose who? And turn a blind eye. Chris Benoit and Pete Rose, two individuals who excelled at something that they grew up having a passion for, something that they loved since they were kids. It led them to the top. They had a drive, they were driven, and that drive led them to a point of no return. And that was across the lines. Today in entertainment history, in 1921, the first Miss America is crowned in Atlantic City, Margaret Gorman of Washington, D.C. In 1960, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, starring Anthony Perkins and Janet Leigh, is released in the United States. In 1966, Star Trek premieres on NBC TV. Shout out to Spock, man, representing for the big ear niggas. And in 1973, Star Trek the Animated Series premieres on TV. In 1986, the Oprah Winfrey Show and the cartoon Silverhawks premieres. Who would have thought? Oprah Winfrey Show and Silverhawks. Yeah, that happened. In 1990, the cartoon Bobby's World premieres. Love that cartoon. 1994, the 11th MTV Video Music Awards airs. Aerosmith wins Best Video and newlyweds Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley open the show uh, with an awkward kiss. Also in 1994, New York Undercover premieres, and I love that show. I always love how they start off with a like a music video to set the tone of the show, what the, what the episode is going to be about, and then it just goes from there with the classic theme song. In 1996, the 48th Emmy Awards air, hosted by Michael J. Fox, Paul Reiser, and Oprah Winfrey. Angela Lansbury sets two records that night, being the most nominated actress for Outstanding Lead in a Drama Series with 18, as well as the most nominated actress without winning. Both of these records still stand. In 1999, American Beauty, directed by Sam Mendes, starring Kevin Spacey, Annette Bening, premieres in Los Angeles. And in 2015, comedian Stephen Colbert debuts as the new host of CBS's The Late Show. Now this portion of the show is where we show appreciation to our haters. Hi haters. Now this hater appreciation is dedicated to none other than Harpo herself. 
Miss Oprah Winfrey. Now, how can you call a billionaire a hater, Steve? Well, I actually love Oprah. I I admire her for her achievements, her breakthroughs, the things that she had to deal with, the roadblocks that she overcame, the obstacles. She has a great success story, one of the greatest American success stories for women, for black women especially. Don't get me wrong. I'm a fan of her work, what she has accomplished, but I don't appreciate how she shit on some people to get there. Like for the longest, she's had this disdain for rappers. I don't know. She's lightened up on the rappers since, but it took a while for her to have rappers show up on her on her show. Case in point, in 2005, she invited the cast of the show of the film Crash onto her show, and Ludacris is a member of the cast. And Ludacris was criticized for using language derogatory to women in his music, resulting in the rapper feeling that he was being treated unfairly and his words were taken out of context. In addition to claims that Winfrey initially didn't invite him to appear on the show, Luda also shared Oprah's reasoning for her reluctance to invite rappers on her show. After the taping, she pulled him to, into a room and they had a five-minute conversation, Luda said. What I got was that by having rappers on her show, she feels like she is empowering in them. It was like some, it was like being at someone's house who doesn't really want you there. Luckily, according to Ludacris, the two have since made peace, ending in one of Winfrey's most high-profile feuds with the rap art. And in 2006, 50 Cent joined a growing list of rappers voicing their disdain for Oprah's perceived lack of respect for rap artists. He said, I think she caters to older white women. He said, then adding, Oprah's audience is my audience's parents. The G-Unit General continued his assault on Oprah over the years, even naming his dog after Winfrey in a show of disrespect. However, the two eventually sat down to make amends in 2012. During an appearance on OWN's Oprah Next, Cap Next Chapter, the two moguls hashed out their differences on camera for the world to see. Although they agreed to disagree on some topics, they ultimately decided to bury the hatchet and move forward on an amicable note. This is a huge milestone for me, just being in your presence and on the show, 50 said. That's a huge accomplishment. It's kind of like, man, you, you have this thing against bringing rappers onto your show. For, for the longest, she didn't even have rappers pop up on her show. Um, you know, she never invited, uh, of course she wouldn't dry, invite Dre or Snoop or Tupac back in the day. But she's totally fine with having crazy batshit fucking Tom Cruise jumping on your couch. Like I said, she's lightened up on the hip-hop genre um, over the years. She has invited Kanye with his goofy ass. Uh, she's had Jay-Z. She even went through the projects to Marcy um, to get his backstory for an episode. So I don't want this to make sound like I'm shitting on Oprah but there's just some things that just doesn't sit well with me I, I don't think she's a hater but she's done some things that a hater would do you interview Michael Jackson back in the early 90s at a time when he didn't grant too many interviews he was a personable person his, his personal life was pretty much shut off from the public but he opened his doors for you Oprah he shared some things that were personal that were intimate, things that you just don't share with any and everybody, Oprah. He probably considered you a friend, 
nobody shares these kind of things with someone that they don't consider a friend. And you were just in his face, he he in and ki he in and giggling. Fast forward to years after, 10 years after the man's died, and here you are sitting with two guys who are still trying to take a dead man to court. A given, I don't think this man did anything with these people. I get it, he's a grown man that should not be having sleepovers with kids. You're a grown man, dude. You should be having sleepover with grown chicks, right? I get that. I, I get the uproar in that. But I don't think, by our standards, what we consider rape, I don't think he was trying to fornicate with these little kids. However, the fact that you're up here co-signing for these guys and, you know, the fact that Michael Jackson is not here to defend himself, that just didn't sit well with me, Oprah. And I know you're hearing this, Oprah, because we have the same circle of friends. I know you listen to my show, Oprah. You got fired from your nighttime job when you were coming up, and you took that opportunity when you got sent to a daytime show. You took that opportunity and ran with it and brought yourself to Chicago. And the world was never the same again. And for that, man, I give you the utmost respect. I give you all the appreciation, all the, like, man, you got all of Steve's props, Oprah. And I know that no one is perfect, but this, these are just things that just didn't sit well with me as someone that, you know, my mom used to be a fan of yours. I asked my mom the other day, do you like Oprah Winfrey? Nah, I don't fuck with her. And I said, why, ma? She doesn't do anything for black people. Uh, well, hey, I can't, I can't argue with that. But she has done stuff for her buddies, you know, Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, and her, and her homegirl, Gail. I don't even know what she specializes in, but she has her own fucking show. I guess she, it's the, hey, I'm Oprah's best friend. I have a show now, whatever. She's done stuff for people. She bought people fucking cars. You get a car, you get a car. Everybody gets a fucking car. I, yay, man, that's really generous. It's also a tax write-off, so I get that too. All the stuff you do in Africa, yeah, that's a tax write-off. Not trying to hate, I'm just saying, these are facts. And I usually end this segment by saying thank you, fuck you, but I'm not gonna do that to Oprah, my sister, all the way from Mississippi. Man, some of those rappers that you were trying to shit on, they were people that were trying to find their way just like you were trying to find your way from Mississippi but I do appreciate you. Uh, I, I own network, all of that stuff. Uh, I don't really read any of the books that you suggest because I don't know, they really weren't for me, I guess. It's not, I'm not in that market, not in that demographic for those books, for some of them, some of them. And honestly, I didn't watch your show. I was in school and you know, I, I wasn't a middle-aged woman sitting at home watching your fucking show, but I bring it up to say, Oprah, man, thank you. But you have done some hater shit. When I feel like I'm rambling, it's time to load up the truck and head home. So that wraps up another week of Over the Culture Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Say hello to your grandpas, to your grandmas. Because it's National Grandparents Day. Happy National Grandparents Day to all the grandparents. We love y'all. Thank y'all. Peace. Ohio.